Amen. Now, can we turn to the book of Titus again and to the first chapter? And we'll read through uh, the first chapter of the book of Titus again. The epistle of Paul to Titus chapter 1 and beginning our reading at the first verse. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching which was committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Saviour. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. And any, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lugar, not a lover, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he have been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The creations are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true, Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men, uh, and that turn from the truth. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They can profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work, reprobate. Amen. We know the Lord will add again his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Now, last time we began to look at the book of Titus, and we saw how that Titus was one of the young men that accompanied the Apostle Paul in many of his missionary journeys, and how Paul had... Uh, uh, first, he, he first came to Christ as a Greek in Antioch, and at the time when this letter is written, he is looking after the churches there in the island of Crete, and he'd been sent there, sent there by the Apostle Paul uh, to uh, put the church in order. The island dwellers of Crete, uh, otherwise known as Cretans or Cretans, were notorious. They were a people known for lying and for, for corruption, for violence, and for sexual sin. The name for a dweller in Crete became synonymous with a liar, 
and it is the uh, Greek word actually for a liar is one that's related to be uh, a Cretan or a Cretan. And they referred to themselves as being liars. If you look at verse 12, it says one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. So these people were notorious for their sin. Located in the Mediterranean Sea, Crete, of course, was a very central place. It was very strategic, and many came and went, and it was on the trade routes, and the seafarers would have put into Crete on many occasions. So uh, the Apostle Paul knew that this was a vital place for the spread of the gospel. So he wanted the churches there, the church there in the island of Crete, to be set in a good order, And he says to Titus in verse 5, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. Now you'll notice that, as we said last time, he was to set things in order. And we notice straight away that there's an order in the church. Uh, The church is not just something that uh, comes in any shape or form. Um, uh, uh, many people have the thought that it really doesn't matter what way the church is run as long as they're preaching the gospel. And we have many ways today in which churches are run. There are the Episcopalians with their bishops over a number of churches, or you have your Congregationalists who have a church which runs itself and every church is independent, or you have your Presbyterians who have a rule of elders, and we see the different kinds. And now we have all sorts of different churches and ministries that are arising. We have them around us today, and they have a plethora of all kinds of ways of running their church. They meet in barns and schools, in shops. There are some um, very near to us uh, in a former nightclub, or another one in a former pub. And some of them have very good ways of running themselves, but others, um, they have ministers that act like uh, chief executive officers of a company, and some of them indeed are registered as companies in companies' house, and they run themselves like a commercial company. But does that matter? Does it matter what way we run things. Well, this is God's church, and therefore God's church needs to be run God's way. And you'll notice how important Paul thought this to be. He sent Timothy there to the island of Crete to set in order the things that were wanting. And when we look at the portion of Scripture, we can see something about the way that the church was to be run. And I want us just to think about that as we look at this portion of Scripture. What does a properly ordered church look like? Well, I want you to notice the things that Paul says here as he speaks about putting things in order. Now, first of all, you'll see that there is the appointment of elders. Paul says, Titus 1 verse 5 there, For this cause... Left I thee in Crete, 
that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. So while the churches in Crete were deficient in a number of areas, that there were things that were wanting, I want you to see the first thing that they were obviously deficient in was in the matter of elders. He says, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. And he points this out as the first and foremost deficiency. And there needed to be elders in the church. And that's very revealing and instructive. It shows us that a local church or a congregation of believer that is defective in not having qualified elders is very defective. And the obvious reason is that God has chosen elders uh, 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 their office as elders and their function as uh, an oversight or as the uh, authorized version translated as bishops um, they are to take care of the flock of God they are to look after things they are to make sure that the spiritual growth of the church and God's people continues so the church needed those who were to oversee the spiritual welfare of the people and direct the congregation. Now, notice then, as we look at what were to be appointed, I want you to see the office which is appointed. He says, ordain elders. Now, Paul um, assumes that Titus knows what elders are, and, of course, Titus does know what elders are because they were the part of the uh, church from the very beginning, uh, the Greek name there for elders is presbyteros, from which we get Presbyterian. And it is synonymous with the name bishop. If you look at verse 7, um, Paul says you're to appoint elders. And then when he goes on to describe what the elders are to be, he says in verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. So a bishop and an elder is the same thing. The elder stresses the dignity of the office and the word bishop, which is a word for overseer, stresses the function. That's what he does. He oversees the congregation. He's like the shepherd who looks after the flock. You remember when Paul was speaking to the elders of Ephesus when they came down to Miletus to meet him. He called the elders of the church of Ephesus and in Acts chapter 20, or 20 and verse 28, he identifies them as overseers. And he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers or bishops to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So these were overseers, they were bishops, they were elders, same thing. And in Acts 20 and verse 28, Paul says, Take heed to the flock. They're like shepherds. They're like pastors. Every elder's a pastor. And that's why um, when you talk about the teaching elder or the ministering elder, sometimes it's better to have the title minister because all of the elders are pastors. They're pastors. We have all passed. We have a number of pastors in this congregation. Um, but their function then is to feed the flock, to guard the flock, they are to look after the well-being of the flock, like shepherds, like pastors. Uh, they are to be those that guard the community and the congregation. 
R.L. Dabney, the theologian, likened elders to inspectors in the Lord's army. And he said, without them, the church would be like a religious mob, not a disciplined spiritual army. And he said, he said that it was the job of the elder to enforce every man's activity in the battle. So we're like uh, uh, commanders in the battle or like shepherds looking after the flock. But not only do I want you to see the office that is appointed, but look at the order by which they are appointed. What I want you to notice is that it says there, ordained elders, verse 5, in every city as I had appointed thee. And the word ordained there, ordained, is a word that means to appoint or ordain. But we're not just, when, when we talk about the word ordain there, when we ordain, it's, a, it's like a service um, where there's the laying on of hands. And that's part of ordination. But it's not the full meaning of the word that is used here. We think of that's ordination to us. When uh, there's a service and the person is set apart for the particular office, the word ordain here is a little bit wider than that because it includes the process of setting the person apart for the office. It means um, the process of looking for a person or of choosing them from among the persons so that there might be um, elections in the congregation. And then it's even wider than that because it uh, includes evangelizing them, winning them to Christ, uh, letting them be trained up in the things of God, teaching them the word of God, uh, getting them involved in the gospel way of life. So it's all of the things that bring a person, bring a man to the place where he can be uh, set apart as an elder. That's, that's what, uh, uh, what Titus was to do. He was to make sure that there were people who were going to be built up in their most holy faith, people who are going to be spiritual, people who are going to be fit for the office, and then the whole process of the congregation seeking out who there were to be the elders among them. So that's what it was. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus did with the twelve apostles. He uh, chose them, brought them to himself, taught them, then began to send them out, trained them to do what they needed to do, and then in the end he sent them out to do the business that they were going to do. And that's, that's the thought here in the word ordain. And so these elders are to be built up, they're to be trained, and they are to be the spiritual men who are going to take the oversight of the church of God. But not only do I want you to see something about the appointment of elders, but I want you to see the attributes of the elders. Um, he says here, um, For a bishop must be blameless, verse 7, as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So you'll notice there the, um, the uh, attributes there, the character. But I want you to notice the word 
blameless. It's used a couple of times there in the portion of Scripture. In verse 6, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. And then for a bishop must be blameless. So there is the first, that seems to be the overall qualification of an elder. He is blameless. He um, needs a character that is blameless or beyond reproach. And then also the other thing seems to be to preside over a a family that is being faithful. Now let's think about the qualifications here. First of all, he needs to have a blameless character. Here in Titus and in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where you also have a list of the qualifications of the elders, the first thing that Paul says in both times about an elder, or almost the first thing, that he must be blameless. This is the primary qualification. It's in the, the list in both passages. And after giving the requirement there in verse uh, 6. He repeats it in verse 7 as we've seen. Now if you compare the list in Titus with the list in uh, 1 Timothy, there are slight differences. And it doesn't seem to be that Paul has um, a very firm list uh, about what is the qualification of an heir. There are many things that are in both lists and those are important. But it's not as if he just has this. this is, these are the actual qualifications. This is the definitive list. He's, he's just saying that as you look at the character of your elders, they must be blameless. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that they're without sin? Well, of course, it doesn't mean that they're without sin. Does it mean per- that they're perfect, that they're flawless, that they're sinless? Well, that's never going to be the case because We are all sinners and the old nature is still there. But Calvin summarizes it and he says, He does not mean one who is exempt from every vice, for no such person could at any time be found, but one who is marked by no disgrace. He means that he shall be a man of unblemished reputation. In other words, what it's saying here is that he's a character beyond criticism. He's blameless in that sight. He's beyond blame. The man's life um, doesn't have obvious faults and flaws. Um, Paul gives five examples here. Not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. And if a person is uh, characterized by any of those things, he's not beyond uh, criticism. And then you have the... um, Positive there in verse 8, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, uh, temperate. And you can see that there are things that he's to refrain from, but then he is to be also proactive in his godliness. There is a negative side, the things that he doesn't do, and there's a positive side, the things that should be true of him. And What I want you to see is that these qualifications are remarkable for being unremarkable because these are things that ought to be true of every child of God. These are things that should be true of each one of us. It's not just that they are things that should be true of an elder. There is nothing extraordinary 
but it is just that the ordinary things are to be done extraordinarily well. That's what an elder is to be. The shepherds are supposed to set a standard for the sheep. They are to be beyond reproach. They should be those that are going to be straight up and down. They're going to be faithful people. They're going to be people who uh, uh, give themselves to the work and witness of God. They're not going to be found wanting. They're not going to be found absent. They're going to be there. And we read then that that is why they are to be commended. It says in uh, Hebrews 13 and verse 7, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. So they are people who set a standard. They are those that we should be willing to follow and want to follow. But then he goes on and he speaks about the family. Look at verse 6 again. He says, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. Now, the phrase, the husband of one wife, means uh, in, literally in the Greek is a, a one-woman man. And he will uh, be a one-woman man. There are many rules, and he's a man, of course. There are many rules for women in the church. But you can see that, first of all, an elder is a man. But on the, free, the surface, maybe we might have problems with that description of uh, a person who, uh, does he need to be married? Must an elder be married then? If he has to be the husband of one wife, must he be married? And then it goes on to say that uh, he has faithful children. Now, does that mean that um, if uh, he has to have children for a start? Paul didn't have. Paul was, didn't seem to be married, so that is a problem for Paul. And Paul didn't seem to have children. So where does that leave Paul? If uh, the elder is to be the husband of one wife and if he has to have faithful children. Is that what it means? Does it mean that a person has to wait until they're married? Or do they have to wait until their children are grown up and they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or if they backslide, does that mean that they have to step down from the eldership? Is that what it means? Well, I don't think that that is what it means. I think that what it says here is, first of all, he's the husband of one wife, uh, a one-woman man. It means, really, it fitting in with all of the other qualifications, it means that he demonstrates faithfulness to his wife. And that's the characteristic. He isn't involved in flirting and in questionable relationships. He's faithful to his wife. And there are good reasons to translate it that way. It aligns with all the other qualifications that are given. He is not unfaithful. That's what is meaning. And then when it speaks of having faithful children. Now, the question is whether the children uh, are to have faith or be faithful. The same word can be used uh, for both of those things. Must it be that the children of elders uh, must be saved 
by the grace of God. Well, of course, it's a good thing if they are. But you know and I know that there are many faithful parents who brought up children, and despite all of their best efforts, those children have rebelled and turned away from the things of God. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, the only mention of children is that they're in subjection with all gravity. It doesn't say um, that they have to be saved. They are in subjection with all gravity. It goes on, not accused of riot or unruly. And what it seems to mean is that these are faithful children in the fact that they're not living recklessly. They, are, they, they have children, they may or may not be Christians, but they are not living recklessly. Now, a father can bring up his children well. A father can train his children. A father can be an example to his children and bring them up well so that they are good citizens. And they are faithful in that sense. They love their father. They love their mother. They are faithful. They are good citizens in that sense. It's a good thing if they're saved. But we can't legislate for the salvation of our children. And so when it says that they are, they, that they are faithful children, that's what it means. Not that they have saving faith, but that they are faithful to their family. They are faithful children in that sense. Because if we got into this place where uh, a child backslid and the elder had to stand down because his child had backslidden, uh, well, we would, be, we would lose many good people over that. So we see the balance there. But I want you to see that there are qualifications here. And I think Paul assumes that the men who are going to be elders are going to be married because that was the norm in those days. And when men were married in those days, it wasn't long before they had children. And so he sort of assumes that that's going to be the case. It doesn't mean that they have to be married, and it doesn't mean that they have to have saved children. It does mean that they need faithful children because our children are going to reflect who we are. And so... Uh, there is that sense. But I want you to see that there is the conduct of their lives, and we see that there. But notice also that these elders are those who teach God's truth. Look at verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Now, we say up until now that all of these qualifications have been true of every child of God. And there is a sense in which this also is true of every child of God. But there is that special sense in which the elder is to be a teacher. They are to impart the truth. In uh, the um, First Timothy passage, it speaks about it in three words, apt to teach. And Paul, just in three words, uh, he, he says, apt to teach. And then in uh, chapter 1, verse 9, uh, he, the uh, clause is expanded here, where he speaks there of being able by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. He tells uh, t Timothy 
in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, And the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. So they teach, they train, they're teachers. If a church has teachers, it has a future. It must train up the next generation to teach, to hold fast the truth, to be able to convince the gainsayers, those who are against us. And when we come to that right understanding of the truth, it needs to be imparted. Now, does that mean that all elders need to be able to stand and give a 30-minute sermon or a 45-minute sermon? Must they be able to take a whole service? Must they be able to know Greek and Hebrew and recite the book of Psalms backwards? Well, Paul doesn't go into such specifics. And we can teach not only by standing in the pulpit, but we can teach by what we are, and we can teach by a little word of exhortation. Paul says that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers We see the two sides of teaching, building up and beating off, feeding the sheep, fighting the wolves. Calvin says there must be two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away the wolves. And Paul says that it is important that we communicate. We, uh, alongside leading a Bible study, or maybe across a coffee table, or in a coffee shop, we are able to instruct, we're able to tell why we believe what we believe. But then I want you to see something else. Notice the authority of elders. Look at what it says in verse 7. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. And it must be remembered that elders are not delegates. Uh, They are not mere delegates of the congregation, but they are the stewards of God. Now, a steward in those days was maybe a director of the household. He was um, the top servant, as it were. He was the one who uh, had authority in the household. And I want you to remember that in God's household, that the elders are given the job to administer, to direct. They're God's agents, the elders of the church. They work among their fellow men, but they are God's stewards. They have treasures of God's people to guard, the word of God to guard, and it's to be a loving care and a reverent care, and we're to treasure up the people of God. But I want you to see that there is an authority there It's not just that they have been appointed. It's not just a place uh, of honor. It's not just, but there's something to do. They are the stewards of God. We've been placed by God as the stewards over his household. And that's a very responsible place as well as a very honorable place. And the uh, elder that rules well, the Bible says, is worthy of double honor especially those that rule in the word and doctrine. But then I want you to see not only the authority of the elders, but look at the antagonists of the elders. Look at verses 9 to 11. 
that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers, for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Now Titus here is uh, not only tasked with finding qualified elders, but he needs to confront the false teachers who claim to know uh, God, but who live as if God does not, does not exist. And uh, like Titus, we have to be alert to the impostors. Is the church today aware of those that twist doctrine? How are we teaching the next generation of believers to discern the difference between truth and lies? The Christian church was under invasion here from insiders, false teachers, who were corrupting the young church here and the people in their community. And Paul advises that the best way to combat this is for Titus to raise up powerful leaders, elders, who are sound in doctrine, who know where they stand, who are willing to live and stand for a countercultural lifestyle, who aren't just going to be swept along with the fashions of today. You see the way that the Church of England is being swept along by the fashions of today and how it has just abandoned the Word of God. Of course, that came when they began to question the Word of God. And as soon as you begin to question the Word of God, you're on the slippery slope to uh, abandoning the Word of God. But we need to be countercultural in these days. We need to be radical. And you notice, I want you to see that there are opposing forces out there, and there are always those that want to teach things that they ought not. This is not a new thing, but it is still true. And there are those that have entered into evangelicalism today, and they are bringing in false notions and false ways. And many of God's people are being swept along by this. And often it's very popular. And many of God's people are uh, convinced by it because it seems to be a thing that attracts many under the Word of God. It seems to raise up big ministries, the big churches in America. How many of them have turned away from the truth? They won't preach the whole counsel of God. They won't preach what God has said in his word. They are glorified um, uh, uh, sort of counselors, really. That's what they are. They are sort of life coaches. and That's all that they are. And we need to stand against the antagonists. But one more thing that I want you to see in closing, that's the assurance for the elders. Look at verse, 14, or verse 13. This witness is true. Wherefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, the elders then are barriers and bulwarks against unsound doctrine. They ought to be a safeguard against letting anything in that will lead people astray but what an assurance that gives to the people of God. If they have good elders, if they are good ministers who will minister the word of God, who will sound out uh, and point out the 
new doctrines and the false doctrines and the new worldly trends. My, what an assurance that gives to the people of God that they are being advised properly, that they are being safeguarded. The, the shepherd always has the, uh, the uh, welfare of the sheep. And sometimes the shepherd has to set the dog on the sheep or he has to take the crook and take the sheep by the neck and pull it out of the place that it has got into. And that's not too pleasant for the sheep. But what a boon it is that there is a shepherd who is safeguarding us from the wolves and from the bears and from the uh, dangers that are out there around about us. And that is why, again, I say that the Bible says that the elders that rule well are counted worthy of double honor. And it wouldn't be wrong to thank God for our elders. It's a thing that God has commanded us to do. But notice that the church is to be set in order. This is God's order, and we need to follow God's order. This is what God has said in his precious word. And we leave aside the word of God at our peril. God has an order for his church, and we need to always guard that scriptural order that God has laid down. May God write his word upon our hearts for his name's sake.